This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Kirsten Ferreri. Dear Enemy, Part Five. Thursday. Dear Enemy, Soyez tranquille. I have issued orders, and in the future the children shall receive all of the cod liver oil that by rights is theirs. A willful man, mon ha his way. S. McBee. March 22nd. Dear Judy, Asylum life has looked up a trifle during the past few days, since the great cod-liver oil war has been raging. The first skirmish occurred on Tuesday, and I unfortunately missed it, having accompanied four of my children on a shopping trip to the village. I returned to find the asylum teeming with hysterics. Our explosive doctor had paid us a visit. Sandy has two passions in life. One is for cod-liver oil, and the other for spinach, neither popular in our nursery. Some time ago, before I came, in fact, he had ordered cod-liver oil for all of the anemic, anemic, heavens, there's that word again, all the anemic children, and had given instructions as to its application to Miss Snaith. Yesterday, in his suspicious Scotch fashion, he began nosing about to find out why the poor little rats weren't fattening up as fast as he thought they ought, and he unearthed a hideous scandal. They hadn't received a whiff of cod-liver oil for three whole weeks. At that point he exploded, and all was joy and excitement and hysterics. Betsy says that she had to send Sadie Kate to the laundry on an improvised errand, as his language was not fit for orphan ears. By the time I got home he had gone, and Miss Snaith had retired weeping to her room, and the whereabouts of fourteen bottles of cod-liver oil was still unexplained. He had accused her at the top of his voice of taking them herself. Imagine Miss Snaith, she who looks so innocent and chinless and inoffensive, stealing cod-liver oil from these poor helpless little orphans and guzzling it in private. Her defense consisted in hysterical assertions that she loved the children, and had done her duty as she saw it. She did not believe in giving medicine to babies. She thought drugs bad for their poor little stomachs. You can imagine Sandy. Oh, dear, oh, dear, to think I missed it. Well, the tempest raged for three days, and Sadie Kate nearly ran her little legs off carrying peppery messages back and forth between us and the doctor. It is only under stress that I communicate with him by telephone, as he has an interfering old termagant of a housekeeper who listens in on the downstairs switch. I don't wish the scandalous secrets of the John Grier's spread abroad. The doctor demanded Miss Snaith's instant dismissal, and I refused. Of course she is a vague, unfocused, inefficient old thing, but she does love the children, and with proper supervision is fairly useful. At least in the light of her exalted family connections, I can't pack her off in disgrace like a drunken cook. I'm hoping in time to eliminate her by a process of delicate suggestion. Perhaps I can make her feel that her health requires a winter in California? And also, no matter what the doctor wants, so positive and dictatorial is his manner that just out of self-respect one must take the other side. When he states that the world is round, I instantly assert it to be triangular. Finally, after three pleasantly exhilarating days, the whole business settled itself. An apology, a very dilute one, was extracted from him for being so unkind to the poor lady, and full confession, with promises for the future, was drawn from her. 
It seems that she couldn't bear to make the little dears take the stuff, but, for obvious reasons, she couldn't bear to cross Dr. McRae. So she hid the last fourteen bottles in a dark corner of the cellar. Just how she was planning to dispose of her loot, I don't know. Can you pawn cod liver oil? Later. Peace negotiations had just ended this afternoon, and Sandy had made a dignified exit, when the Honorable Cyrus Wyckoff was announced. Two enemies in the course of an hour are really too much. The Aunt Cy was awfully impressed with the new dining-room, especially when he heard that Betsy had put on those rabbits with her own lily-white hands. Stenciling rabbits on walls, he allows, is a fitting pursuit for a woman, but an executive position like mine is a trifle out of her sphere. He thinks it would be far wiser if Mr. Pendleton did not give me such a free scope in the spending of his money. While we were still contemplating Betsy's mural flight, an awful crash came from the pantry, and we found Gladiola Murphy weeping among the ruins of five yellow plates. It is sufficiently shattering to my nerves to hear these crashes when I am alone, but is peculiarly shattering when receiving a call from an unsympathetic trustee. I shall cherish that set of dishes to the best of my ability, but if you wish to see your gift in all its uncracked beauty, I should advise you to hurry north and visit the John Grier home without delay. Yours as ever, Sally. March 26th Dear Judy, I have just been holding an interview with a woman who wants to take a baby home to surprise her husband. I had a hard time convincing her that, since he is to support the child, it might be a delicate attention to consult him about its adoption. She argued stubbornly that it was none of his business, seeing that the onerous work of washing and dressing and training would fall upon her. I'm really beginning to feel sorry for men. Some of them seem to have very few rights. Even our pugnacious doctor I suspect of being a victim of domestic tyranny, and his housekeepers at that. It is scandalous the way Maggie McGurk neglects the poor man. I have had to put him in the charge of an orphan. Sadie Kate, with a very housewifely air, is this moment sitting cross-legged on the hearth-rug, sewing buttons on his overcoat while he is upstairs tending babies. You would never believe it, but Sandy and I are growing quite confidential, in a dour Scotch fashion. It has become his habit, when homeward bound after his professional calls, to chug up to our door at about four in the afternoon, and make the rounds of the house to make sure that we are not developing cholera morbus or infanticide or anything catching, and then present himself at four-thirty at my library door to talk over our mutual problems. Does he come to see me? Oh, no, indeed, he comes to get tea and toast and marmalade. The man hath a lean and hungry look. His housekeeper doesn't feed him enough. As soon as I get the upper hand of him a little more, I am going to urge him on to revolt. Meanwhile, he is very grateful for something to eat, but, oh, so funny in his attempts at a social grace. At first he would hold a cup of tea in one hand, a plate of muffins in the other, and then search blankly for a third hand to eat them with. Now he's solved the problem. He turns in his toes and brings his knees together. Then he folds his napkin into a long, narrow wedge that fills the crack between them, thus forming a very workable pseudo-lap. After that he sits with tense muscles until the tea is drunk. I suppose I ought to provide him a table, but the spectacle of Sandy with his toes turned in is the one gleam of amusement that my day affords. The postman is just driving in with, I trust, a letter from you. Letters make a very interesting break in the monotony of asylum life. If you wish to keep this superintendent contented, you'd better write often. Mail received and contents noted. Kindly convey my thanks to Jervis for three alligators in a swamp. He shows rare artistic taste in the selection of his postcards. 
Your seven-page illustrated letter from Miami arrives at the same time. I should have known Jervis from the palm-tree perfectly, even without the label, as the tree has so much the more hair of the two. Also, I have a polite bread-and-butter letter from my nice young man in Washington, and a book from him, likewise a box of candy. The bag of peanuts for the kiddies he has shipped by express. Did you ever know such assiduity? Jimmy favors me with the news that he is coming to visit me as soon as father can spare him from the factory. The poor boy does hate that factory so. It isn't that he's lazy, he just simply isn't interested in overalls. But father can't understand such a lack of taste. Having built up the factory, he, of course, has developed a passion for overalls, which should have been inherited by his eldest son. I find it awfully convenient to have been born a daughter. I am not asked to like overalls, but am left free to follow any morbid career I may choose, such as this. To return to by mail. There arrives an advertisement from a wholesale grocer, saying that he has exceptionally economical brands of oatmeal, rice, flour, prunes, and dried apples that he packs specially for prisons and charitable institutions. Sounds nutritious, doesn't it? I also have letters from a couple of farmers, each of whom would like to have a strong husky boy of fourteen who is not afraid of work, their object being to give him a good home. These good homes appear with great frequency just as the spring planting is coming on. When we investigated one of them last week, the village minister, in answer to our usual question, does he own any property, replied in a very guarded manner, I think he must own a corkscrew. You would hardly credit some of the homes that we have investigated. We found a very prosperous country family the other day, who lived huddled together in three rooms in order to keep the rest of their handsome house clean. The fourteen-year-old girl they wished to adopt by way of a cheap servant was to sleep in the same tiny room with their own three children. Their kitchen-dining-parlor apartment was more cluttered up and unaired than any city tenement I ever saw, and the thermometer at eighty-four. One could scarcely say that they were living there. They were rather cooking. You may be sure they got no girl from us. I have made one invariable rule. Every other is flexible. No child is to be placed out unless the proposed family can offer better advantages than we can give. I mean, than we are going to be able to give in the course of a few months, when we get ourselves made over into a model institution. I shall have to confess that at present we are still pretty bad. But anyway, I am very choosy in regard to homes, and I reject three-fourths of those that offer. Later. Gordon has made honorable amends to my children. His bag of peanuts is here, made of burlap, and three feet high. Do you remember the dessert of peanuts and maple sugar they used to give us at college? We turned up our noses, but ate. I am instituting it here, and I assure you that we don't turn up our noses. It is a pleasure to feed children who have graduated from a course of Mrs. Lippett. They are pathetically grateful for small blessings. You can't complain that this letter is too short. Yours, on the verge of writer's cramp, S. McBee. The John Grier Home. Off and on all day Friday. Dear Judy, you will be interested to hear that I have encountered another enemy, the doctor's housekeeper. I've talked to the creature several times over the telephone, and had noticed that her voice was not distinguished by the soft, low accents that mark the cast of Ver de Ver, but now I have seen her. This morning, while returning from the village, I made a slight detour, and passed our doctor's house. Sandy is evidently the result of environment, olive green, with a mansard roof and the shades pulled down. You would think he'd just been holding a funeral. I don't wonder that the amenities of life has somewhat escaped the poor man. 
After studying the outside of the house, I was filled with curiosity to see if the inside matched. Having sneezed five times before breakfast this morning, I decided to go in and consult him professionally. To be sure, he is a children's specialist, but sneezes are common to all ages. So I boldly marched up the steps and rang the bell. Hark! What sound is that that breaks upon our revelry? The Honorable Sy's voice, as I live, approaching up the stairs. I have letters to write, and I can't be tormented by his blether. So I am rushing Jane to the door with orders to look him firmly in the eye and tell him I am out. On with the dance. Let joy be unconfined. He's gone. But those eight stars represent eight agonizing minutes spent in the dark of my library closet. The Honorable Sy received Jane's communication with the affable statement that he would sit down and wait, whereupon he entered and sat. But did Jane leave me to languish in the closet? No. She enticed him to the nursery to see the awful thing that Sadie Kate has done. The Honorable Sy loves to see awful things, particularly when done by Sadie Kate. I haven't an idea what scandal Jane is about to disclose, but no matter, he's gone. Where was I? Oh, yes, I'd rung the doctor's bell. The door was opened by a large husky person with her sleeves rolled up. She looked very businesslike, with a hawk's nose and cold gray eyes. Well, she said, her tone implying that I was a vacuum cleaning agent. Good morning. I smiled affably and stepped inside. Is this Mrs. McGurk? It is, said she. And ye'll be the new young woman in the orphan asylum. I am that, said I. Is himself at home? He is not, said she. But this is his office hour. He don't keep it regular. He ought, said I sternly. Kindly tell him that Miss McBride called to consult him, and ask him to look in at the John Greer home this afternoon. Humph! grunted Mrs. McGurk, and closed the door so promptly that she shut in the hem of my skirt. When I told the doctor this afternoon, he shrugged his shoulders and observed that that was Maggie's gracious way. Why do you put up with Maggie? said I. Where would I find any one better? said he. Doing the work for a lone man who comes as irregularly to meals as a twenty-four hour day will permit is no sinecure. She furnishes little sunshine in the home, but she does manage to produce a hot dinner at nine o'clock at night. Just the same, I'm willing to wager that her hot dinners are neither delicious nor well served. She's an inefficient, lazy old termagant, and I know why she doesn't like me. She imagines that I want to steal away the doctor and oust her from a comfortable position. Something of a joke, considering. But I am not undeceiving her. It will do the old thing good to worry a little. She may cook him better dinners and fatten him up a trifle. I understand that fat men are good natured. Ten o'clock. I don't know what silly stuff I have been writing to you off and on all day between interruptions. It has got to be night at last, and I am too tired to do so much as hold up my head. Your song tells the sad truth. There is no joy in life but sleep. I bid you good night. S. McBee. Isn't the English language absurd? Look at those forty monosyllables in a row. End of part five.